1: What up, everybody? I'm Rob Brant. And
2: I'm Rick Brant, and we are the brothers, Brant.
1: And welcome to episode 23, The Knuckleball, featuring Steve Sparks. Super excited to have Steve on. Episode 22, we talked a little bit about Seinfeld and the Brooklyn Cyclones, but this is going to be a great, great episode. Rick, give the listeners an idea of who we're talking to Tonight. All right. Well,
2: <laughs> I, I am just honored to introduce today's guest, Steve Sparks. Steve pitched in the major leagues for twenty years. He's known for being a knuckleball pitcher, and he had some phenomenal seasons that we're gonna dive into. We're gonna hear all about his childhood growing up in Oklahoma and pitching in Texas. But uh, then we're gonna dive into his post playing career where we can learn about what he's been up to since he retired as an Astros radio color analyst. And uh, I'm just super honored, Steve, to have you on. You've become like a friend to me, and uh, it was great working with you during spring training. So uh, thanks for being here.
3: Uh, It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this, guys. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing great. Doing great. Good. Staying strong. Well, now, you guys
3: look like you've been golfing a little bit because you, you both look like you have some farmer's tans right now. So that's a good thing, and I'm in the same boat.
1: Hit it, hit in the range every day. Hit in the range. That's every great. Day.
3: Good, good <laughs> for you. I just came back from the range about an hour and a half ago. Uh, I haven't been playing as much as I'd like to. Man, it's super hot here in Houston right now. So in the middle of the day, man, it's just you don't even want to get outside. Oh my gosh, couldn't have Now couldn't Rob, imagine. I teed it up
2: once with Steve, and he's a pretty good golfer.
3: You know it's all it's all relative right uh it, you always know that you have a lot of stuff to work on but I, pre- I appreciate you saying that uh I've gotten my my handicap down to probably three and a half before and right now it's probably about a five and a half so oh my gosh it's okay That's you know, awesome. I, but That's you awesome. always feel like you can get a lot better
1: yeah you guys played at PGA uh the, the Honda Classic right of course yeah
3: That was a treat. It's a good time. Whenever you get a chance to play a course like that, you always recognize what an honor that is to step on uh, those courses. And and the thing about that, Rick took me out there just a couple of days after they played the tournament. So condition wise, outside of not playing the tips, condition wise, it was very similar. So it was fun.
1: Awesome. Love it. Love it. Well, Hey, Steve, we're going to jump into this podcast and uh, you know, we just covered Seinfeld. And Seinfeld meant a lot for me and Rick growing up, and uh, the Brooklyn Cyclones had Seinfeld night, but I'm curious, what was your favorite episode of Seinfeld?
3: You know what, there's a couple of them, one was when uh, uh, George faked like he was a marine biologist, and, and Kramer ended the episode with the tide list. I love that one, but I think my favorite's the Soup Nazi and uh, maybe just because my wife, ever since that episode, and I think it was in 1995 that episode came out, and I was a r- right after my rookie season in Milwaukee, and she and I watched that. We thought that was the funniest episode ever, but that same episode, Jerry had a girlfriend that they were very affectionate, and it was starting to make people uncomfortable, and kind of, it was kind of sickening about how affectionate they, they were in public. And they had this little nickname for each other. Me and my wife always joke around with that nickname still. And we call, her, call each other "Smoopy" because of Jerry and, and his sickening girlfriend. So <laughs> I would say that one sticks out more than any other.
1: <laughs> That's funny. My favorite is the marine biologist. So I gave the fist pump when you said that.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a great one, man. They, 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 melt, they melded it together just right. It
1: was incredible. It was incredible. Yep. All right. So you grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah. played baseball, went to Sam Houston State in Texas. What was baseball like in uh, in Oklahoma growing up as a kid? Like when did you start to play baseball? When did you decide this is the sport I want to play?
3: Well, I had a brother that was five years older than me. So I just wanted to be like my brother, you know, I tagged along and he played three sports, baseball, football, and basketball. And I love those sports because of him and always tried to play with him and his friends and it, it, I think you can say a lot a lot of major league players had older brothers because it just makes you a little tougher uh to, to play with older brothers so you know it's just baseball just just melted me you know my my dad I remember in 1969 I, I didn't even know how to read yet but taught me how to read the the box scores in the newspaper and uh started to follow teams and I saw what the New York Mets did that year if you remember they came from way back and they'd never been very good and they came back and and they won you know they overcame the cubs and they won the world series as the miracle mets and i fell in love with baseball right then so spent almost every dime that i had my entire life and i had a paper route since third from third grade till i went to college and i spent almost every dime i had on baseball cards and uh, you learn stats and you learn uh, where guys were from and little funny tidbits and you know that kind of comes in handy now as a broadcaster but uh, more than anything, I, I just fell in love with the with the idea of maybe, you know, getting a chance to, to do that for a living someday. So it very singular on my mind that, uh, that I was going to be a major league baseball player. And I never really wavered, even though it was pretty rocky and never really seemed like I had much of a chance, you know, a, through a lot of that. But uh, Oklahoma was very competitive. You know, I have to say that uh, baseball was a big deal. Sports are a big deal. They don't have major league teams. So it's the colleges, o- Oklahoma State, and OU that seem like those are the 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 things that really you know catch your eye and, and make you want to become you know like that someday. But athletics were, were huge in my, in my family, and uh, I, I followed my brother. and, and my dad was a, a great encourager. I have to say that that uh, you know if it wasn't for him, uh, there's no way that I would have continued to love the game the way I did.
1: Mm. Mm, lots of influence there from your brother and your dad. I love that. Yeah. And I Rick's my older brother, and I definitely agree. I was a lot tougher. Uh, <laughs> um, him. He really beat the crap out of me sometimes.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, you love each other any less, but uh, uh, I, I think about how much my brother toughened me up uh, for, forever, you know, in the discipline that they taught me with their work ethic,
1: too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely looked up to Rick when during my childhood. Uh, and uh, so then, he, so so super competitive. Played a bunch of sports, and then yeah. hit. What was it like uh, going to Sam Houston State and okay. pitching there? Were you recruited? Did you walk on? How'd that happen?
3: Well, this is this is maybe one of the craziest stories you'll ever hear, as, as far as uh, career paths, you know. And it just kind of goes to show you how things can can flip on a dime. So I walked on in junior college as an infielder, and I played at Eastern Oklahoma State College in Wilburton, Oklahoma as an infielder. And uh, when I went to Sam Houston State, I basically went there just because it was gonna be a warmer climate. You know, I was tired of playing in the cold uh, climate in in February in Oklahoma and it's windy and I just wanted to play someplace warmer. So I went in my junior college to the library and I was looking at schools in Texas and I found this, this one school that said Sam Houston State University. I'd literally never heard of it before. And I saw it was in Huntsville, Texas. And the description there said that the average winter temperature was 51 degrees. So that's where I'm going to school. And that's how I chose it. So I went and walked on down there. So here's, here's the way it goes is, is I'd never heard of it. I'd been playing some pretty competitive baseball. So I felt like, man, I, I can walk on and play there. I, I did it in junior college. Shouldn't be a big deal. So I go there to the walk on the tryouts basically, and there's 75 to 100 guys trying out, and I just go, all right, man, uh, you know, and I look around a little bit, and I start to notice these guys are a little bit better than I thought they were going to be, and, you know, when they get infielders out there, one of the things they want to see is how fast you are, and I remember one running the 60-yard dash, and when I ran the 60-yard dash, it was a little misty that day, and I didn't get a great start, and I slipped just a little bit, but as I passed the guy with the stopwatch, I heard him say seven-something, And seven's kind of the cutoff on whether or not you're decent speed or not so good at speed. And I'm not sure how high over seven I was, but I heard seven. So I panicked. By the time I slowed down and walked back to the guy with the stopwatch, I formulated in my mind a new path, and I said, hey, why are the pitchers running 60-yard dashes? And he sent me over with the pitchers, and that's the day I started pitching so that's no, how things changed. no so quickly, you
1: I, didn't start pitching just because of that oh my God.
3: yeah I mean literally a seven second span of just the way my mind just kind of calculated I don't want to go to school eight hours away from my house and not play baseball so that's that's what I came up with started <laughs> pitching and by my senior year I ended up being a fifth rounder
1: wow did you all right so I okay now that I know that I, I had no idea and I didn't I didn't I didn't want to. I wanted to hear it from your your perspective. So, what was? Did you pitch in high school? Did you have any background, or you just kind of jumped into it?
3: Probably pitched three or four games in high school. Pitched a handful of games in junior college, and basically just from the infield position. When guys couldn't throw strikes, they needed somebody. So I didn't have any secondary pitches, anything like that. I just had a good arm, and uh, I could throw strikes. So that was basically the gist of it. I will say my senior year in high school when i did pitch those 3 games all 3 of them were no hitters and 2 of them were perfect games but what? i just didn't want to pitch you know i was a, you know i always just thought of myself as a hitter uh, you know i was wrong but uh, ended up being a pitcher later on so
1: wow wow that was it and and so when did the knuckleball come come into play when did the when, was that in college
3: No. So I was a conventional pitcher when I got drafted. um, My senior year at Sam Houston State, I had a good year. got drafted in the fifth round with the Milwaukee Brewers, signed for $13,000 and bought an engagement ring with that. And then basically uh, went into the minor leagues. And when I got to the double-A level, my stuff was marginal. And I had to be really accurate and good with my location uh, to pitch well. And in some days it was okay, and some days it wasn't, but – uh, when your velocity is at those margins, you just don't have much margin for error. So that's where I was having trouble getting out of double A. And the Brewers thought, you know what? I mean, let's, he might be a good candidate for a knuckleball. Let's give him another shot at this. They met with me. They said, hey, why don't you throw the knuckleball? We'll bring you to Instructional League. You can work on it. And we'll give you a three year plan. We'll say 30% the first year, let's go 50% the second year, and 70, 70% the third year. And we'll see where we're at after that. So it was kind of a new lease on life, though I'd never thrown one before. Uh, But I said, "Yeah, let's do it." You know, it felt like uh, they were giving me uh, another opportunity. So I started back in A-ball and worked my way back up. And after the end of that third year, I was knocking at the door of the big leagues. So it paid off.
1: Oh my gosh! Wow! What an incredible story from your junior college (laughs) to going to Sam Houston. It was nuts. To, to changing up being a knuckleballer after being drafted in the fifth round. Unbelievable just being you know, able to that, be on your toes and pivot.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm telling you, that all those uh, baseball cards that I collected growing up with my paper route money, that's what I went to when they asked me to start throwing the knuckleball. I had to see how guys held it. I have no idea. So it was a lot of trial and error going on. And uh, I will say the first year that I threw the knuckleball, I got worse the entire time because of the low percentage of knuckleballs. You really have to commit to that pitch to get better and not to go back and forth between your other pitches and your knuckleball because you lose the feel. So that was the biggest hurdle.
1: Now I, I, yeah, it's awesome. I love hearing this. I, growing up, you know, obviously I played backyard baseball. I didn't do anything impressive, but I think, I think every listener that's, uh, that subscribe to our podcast you know they're all sports players so they all played backyard baseball at some point point. Sure. and I feel like everybody was the pitcher you know and they all wanted to try and throw the knuckleball so uh for the listeners that don't know what a knuckleball is can you just briefly explain that and then uh do your best to briefly explain how to throw one okay
3: yeah well um the the basic premise whenever you're you're throwing a baseball normally is for a fastball but here you know what I got a baseball right behind me Okay, you're always trying to make the ball spin. So a four seam fastball, if I if I held the ball across the long seam and I threw it one revolution, four seams would cut against the wind. So it's kind of stay fast and true that way. And if I threw a two seam fastball when I would throw it in between those long lines, then only two seams would cut into the wind when I threw it, and that would cause the ball to sink. And a two-seam fastball is the same, na- same name that they have for a sinker. So that's two different types of fastballs. In a curveball, you make the spin forward, so it's just the opposite of a four-seam fastball. So that's where the uh, deception lies. So there's different ways to spin the baseball. Here's where the knuckleball differs. You're trying to take the spin off the ball completely. So what you do is you dig your fingernail. It's kind of a misnomer as far as digging your, your knuckles into the ball. You dig your fingernails into the ball like this, And you put these fingers on the side of it and you push the ball more or less. And that's just kind of a basic way to explain it. But when you throw the ball and you pop your fingers open when you release it, hopefully it doesn't spin. And when it doesn't spin, then the wind and the resistance of the air can cut into these seams and cause the ball to dance. And by the time it gets to home plate, if it dances around and the movement is sporadic or or unpredictable, that's what makes it tough for the hitter to hit. So that's the ba- that's the basic premise. You're trying to take the spin off of the baseball.
1: Uh, Steve, my mind is blown right now. Does that make sense? Yes,
3: yes. Okay. So.
1: Man, where, where were you when I was like 12 years old trying to throw the knuckleball <laughs> and trying to win our, our our World Series in the backyard? I needed that. I needed the fingernails.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? If you were like a lot of people, you would have hit me up. You know, you're, you would have written me a letter or, you know, these days guys have... Uh, emailed uh, the Astros or somebody, so it seems like every offseason there's one or two guys that'll send me videos to talk about some things. One of the things that that I thought was interesting, uh, remember Charlie Huff, kind of a famous knuckleball pitcher who had a great career, and he pitched forever. But one day, see, knuckleballers end up talking to each other because nobody else really kind of knows what we're, we're kind of dealing with. <laughs> so we all talk, and Charlie Huff, I was talking to him one time during my career, and he said, it looks like you're trying to throw the ball downhill. And that's basically, and I, and I told him, yeah, I am. He said, well, you don't do that as a knuckleballer. You do that as a, as a regular pitcher, but as a knuckleballer, to keep your palm behind the ball longer, you want to aim higher and that's the that's the big secret to knuckleball is is you don't want your fingers to roll over it because that causes it to spin then it, then it becomes predictable for the hitter. But when you take the spin off, you've got to keep your palm behind the ball longer so instead of aiming for the catcher's glove, you aim for the top of his mask, something really high up here, that way you, it just drops into the strike zone and you keep your palm behind the ball longer. Little tips like that can go a long, long way for guys learning how to throw the pitch.
1: Oh my gosh. So cool. I love, I love this. My, my brain, my brain is just taking it all in. (laughs) So, so I want to go to your, uh, your MLB career. Uh, You know, made your debut in 95, Um, 97 you had Tommy John surgery. Yeah. That's right. 98 you had a great season with the angels, right?
3: Uh, Yeah. I played about a half a season after Tommy John surgery. I was back in the major leagues. Exactly. One day uh, or one year to the day after my Tommy John surgery on June 13th that year.
1: Mm. And then you you had a great season with the Tigers a couple years after where you had 14 wins, eight complete games. Mm -hmm. That was impressive. 116 strikeouts. Walk us through that season with the Tigers.
3: You know what? Uh, it was just more, I think the knuckleball is more mechanical than any other pitch. It's just what I'm talking about is like your hand and your wrist and everything just has to be in the right position. And, uh, it, believe it or not, it takes, you know, a pretty strong core and, and legs and everything else to, to stabilize everything else to get to the same point time after time, after time, after time. So uh, for me, it was just a situation, I think a, a few times in my career where I really got locked in mechanically and, uh, and when you do that, you know, I, I'm certainly not bragging because, you know, it was it a was pretty nondescript career. Uh, very appreciative and grateful for the career I had. But uh, when you go out there and, and you're throwing the ball really well as a knuckleballer, it doesn't matter who's hitting. It doesn't matter if it's Alex Rodriguez. It doesn't matter if it's King Griffey Jr., if it's Don Mattingly. It doesn't matter who it is. When you're throwing a good knuckleball, You're just not going to have much success. So uh, it's very unpredictable. They're not used to to dealing with that pitch, and a lot of guys will take the day off so they don't mess up their swing. But the big thing I think that a lot of hitters have as an advantage over uh, a lot of people who don't make it to the major leagues, maybe minor leaguers or even guys who just maybe didn't even play in high school, is tremendous eyesight. And it's what I was talking to you earlier about is – they can see the way the ball's spinning so quickly that then they can take advantage of their, their great hand-eye coordination. But I think it really starts with the eyes. And with the knuckleball, when you don't have spin, that kind of neutralizes uh, what they're able to
1: do. Mm-hmm. Going back to that, like you were talking about A-Rod and Griffey, who was your favorite or couple of favorite batters to face where you just – you just dominated them, like with oh, the ball. Who was your, who was your favorites? Where you're like gonna tell this to your your grandchildren? And you'd be like, I, I I'll t- say,
3: I'll, I'll say this. My my first couple times through the league when I faced Dave Winfield, uh, Don Mattingly, Frank Thomas, a few guys that uh, I really idolized. You know, and like you're talking about, you're playing on video games or collected their baseball cards. When I started to face players like that that's when you had to kind of step back off the the Mount Kirby pocket comes to mind is like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe where I am right now. And then you just have to kind of like reset. It's almost like you're watching Kevin Costner go through the reset, you know, and like, all right, you know, I, I've got to, I, I got I to gotta concentrate here and, and not, not think about who I'm facing. Um, but when you, when you strike out an Edgar Martinez or King Griffey Jr. Or, or some of these great players, it's a thrill. It really is. I mean, it's, you know, looking back now, they're Hall of Famers. They're the, they're the the top 1% of who have ever played this game. Um, so it's fun. It's great, great fun competing against those guys and trying to figure it out. And I think that's why I love golf so much now, too, and it's why I love to still be involved with baseball and in a different way is broadcasting, uh, because I do three innings of play-by-play. It's not something I went to school for, so it's incredibly challenging. Uh same way baseball was. Same way golf is. Every day's a new challenge, and I love that.
1: Man, lots to unpack there. Now, yeah. so you struck out Ken Griffey. Yeah, yeah.
3: You know, oh, uh, you know what I mean. You strike them out, but they get you more time. I mean, especially guys <laughs> like me, they get me a lot more than I get them. But yeah, I, I, I struck out all you know all those guys at some point or another, and uh it's a thrill you know but they've also hit balls 460 feet off of me too and (laughs) that's a thrill for them
1: oh my gosh I could only imagine like a knuckleball when you're pitching it and you're just like oh no I didn't get the best grip on that or I didn't oh yeah
3: no there's no (laughs) doubt about it you can feel almost a click when it comes off your hand right and you know it's going to be a good one but you can also feel when it kind of rolls out of your hand you know it's a crappy one that you know that you're in trouble. So I used to kind of, I used to joke with reporters that I used to try to throw it slower. So I had more time to back up.
1: <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate that, Rick. Is there any uh, questions you want to add in on the MLB career?
2: Yeah, man. I've got a ton of questions, uh, you know, awesome stuff. Like Rob just said, who were some of the hitters? Like we just saw Maguire. We just saw Sosa in a recent documentary, did you face any of those guys? Were there some guys that just got like the better of you a lot?
3: Uh, Jim Tomey uh, did. Uh, I faced both Maguire and Sosa. I faced. I mean, I faced all those guys from mid '90s to mid '2000s. You know, so all those guys you can think of. And and to be honest with you, I faced them in the height of the steroid era. So you look at numbers back in those days; they're they're super inflated, and that's why guys like Pedro Martinez were so ridiculous and. I believe it was 1999 and 2000 where his ERA was under two when the league average was just barely below five as far as ERAs go in that time because of all the home runs and the steroids. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of guys. Derek Jeter uh, seems like he got a, a million hits off of me. Paul Molitor uh, did did great against me. I gave up uh, Jeter's 1,000th hit. That was a, a milestone that always comes up. Uh, I think that was a Jeopardy question. I've been on Jeopardy a couple of times, by the way, Rick, and I'm surprised you haven't asked uh, for one of the reasons, because I, I'm probably more famous uh, for something off the field than I am on the field. Do you know what I'm talking about? Lay it on us. Give us our, our
1: listeners you know?
2: the do you details know? are. I got to admit, I don't think I do. Okay, here it is. So-
1: what up, everybody? You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Enjoy the show, guys. So 1995, I'd been in
3: the minor leagues for eight years to this point, and I got my uh, first invitation to the major leagues in you know, it's partly because I, I kind of started my career path over going back to A-ball when I started throwing the knuckleball. So, you know, here I am. I think I'm 29 years old, first, first time in Major League Spring Training. And there's these great players, man. It, uh, it was a lot of fun. But our general manager, his name is Sal Bando. Uh, he had a great baseball career. Uh, our manager was Phil Garner scrap Iron, who had a great career as a player and as a manager. Uh, they invited these guys to come to spring training and their name was Radical Reality, and they were a motivational group, and they did all those feats of strength. And you've seen guys like this before. They would bend the bars uh, with their teeth, and they would blow up hot water bottles. Uh, they would also uh, kind of karate chop wood. And one of the other things they did is they would tear phone books in, in half, like it was just a, a tiny piece of paper. It was unbelievable to watch them do that. So. Here's actually what happened. The next day, uh, we had a rain delay in Arizona. It was in spring training. And myself, a guy named Jesse Orozco and Mike Fetters, a couple of veteran pitchers on the team, were just talking about those guys. We were laughing about some of the stuff they did because they, they did it with such enthusiasm and animation. But uh, we started to talk about the phone books, wondered if there was a trick to it. And back in those days, there actually was a pay phone in our clubhouse and lo and behold, below the, the pay phone was some three phone books, Yellow Pages of Phoenix. So we went and picked them up, and we were going to see if there was a trick to it. And we're messing around, and none of us really uh, made them budge at all or, or even made a dent in it. So we're continuing to talk, you know, and we're just BSing in the locker room. And I started to kind of cheat. I was doing a few pages at a time and just kind of messing with it while they weren't looking. And lo and behold, I kind of got a grip on it. And I felt like I could make it move a little bit. So I stood up and I kind of hammed it up a little bit. I started to tear it and they got a little excited and they started hooping and hollering. And then some of the other guys on the team started gathering around and guys are chanting my name, Sparky, Sparky. And I'm ripping, I'm ripping. And I dislocate my left shoulder. Oh Gosh. Dislocate. So I go to the hospital They knock it back in. I come back the next day. They send me down to the minor leagues. And this is the way the story comes out. The story comes out that I'm this minor career minor leaguer, that this group comes in, and I get so excited that I jump up on stage, and I tried to rip a phone book with those guys on the stage, and I dislocate my right shoulder, my throwing shoulder, not my left one, but my throwing shoulder. And that's the way the story came out. So that's what was on Sports Talk Radio, Story came out in Sports Illustrated, blah, blah, blah. It just, the momentum continued. And <laughs> I, can't, I can't refute it. You know, you, you just got to wear it, you know, because you sound like an idiot if you try to refute. Because it was stupid to begin with. So, by the way, that was the sixth time I had dislocated that shoulder. So, it, it was susceptible. Unbelievable. So, fast forward. I mean, it, 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 you know, the next year, you know, I'm at Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park. And every time I'm at the ballpark, somebody in the stands has a phone book for me to autograph or, or something like that. The year 2000 comes and they've got all these lists coming out on, on all these stations, the top 10, whatever, whatever, whatever. Well, it comes to the top 10 stupidest sports injuries of the century. And I'm number four. <laughs> I'm number four in the stupidest sports injuries of the century. And every single time, I mean, this happens three times a year minimum somebody does something stupid and gets hurt they come out with a new list i vacillate between four and seven every single time i in every <laughs> single list so that's what i'm most known for
2: oh my gosh that's so good steve yeah. i didn't know about that bro
3: yeah i, I was waiting for it
2: no, listen i've always admired you for the picture that you were and actually <laughs> Getting, getting to uh, hear you call the games on, on radio now, those are, that's what I think of when I think of Steve Sparks. But now, if I ever see a phone book again, I'm going to think of you.
3: There you go. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many phone books floating around anymore, thank goodness.
2: Yeah, I think you're probably fortunate now that technology has just gotten away with those. Cause, maybe, uh, I was a
3: little, maybe I was a little ahead of myself.
2: <laughs> so I had one more baseball question that I wanted to ask you before we get into some radio okay. uh, talk. So, Phil Negro, he won 300 games. He's probably the most successful knuckleball pitcher as far as wins go. Tim Wakefield won 200 games.
3: Right.
2: Did you ever look up to those guys? Did you ever learn from those guys? Um, I just would love to know if you picked their brains.
3: Yeah. So, Wakefield and I ended up being really good friends because um, we were contemporaries, pitched against each other a few times, and actually we were getting ready to face off against each other uh at fenway park in 1995 that was my rookie year as tim's probably second or third year and phil necro i think we were pitching the second or third game of that series at, at fenway and phil necro comes into town the first game of the series and uh wakefield gives me a call and he said hey uh come to the ballpark early phil wants to meet with us in the bullpen at fenway at noon, so come right after lunch and, and we we're just gonna have a conversation. And I'm not kidding you, it was three hours of the, of the most meaningful, uh, fun, impactful conversation that he and I ever had. I mean, the, the questions we had, man, we were bombarding him with, with questions and he was just ping-ponging back and forth between us, just answering questions and uh, it was awesome. And I remember walking back to the, the clubhouse after we were, we were down there and actually Pedro kind of came up at the end of it. He was wanting to listen to part of it because he had a bullpen to throw out there. But, uh, it just meant so much to us. And I remember my head spinning as I was walking back to the clubhouse and I was just remember what I was thinking more than anything is I didn't want to forget so many of the things that uh, we were talking about. So I asked my manager at that time, I said, Hey, I know we've got team stretch here in about 20 minutes, but I just, I just came back from that, that meeting w- with Noxie out there. And, uh, I need to write a lot of this stuff down. Do you mind if I come out there late? Because uh, I, I was done with all my work there, there before that day. And he said, yeah, go ahead, go for it. So I was writing down pages worth of information that he gave us. And uh, I think Tim and I kind of uh, exchanged notes on, on some of that stuff. So we didn't, we didn't lose uh, what we gave. But, you know, then it was speed dial. You know, we had these guys, Tom Candiotti, Charlie Huff, Phil and Joe Necro both. Um, Hoyt Wilhelm, who's also in the Hall of Fame, along with Phil Negro, as Knuckleball Hall of Famers. Uh, just a, it's a fraternity, it really is, a, of guys who can help each other out. So it was a fun club to be a part of. Hey, who won that game that night, you or Tim Wakefield? I think we both kind of – I don't think I, – I, I think we both got a no decision. I don't remember who won. Um, I don't remember. I remember – think- the last, the last time that two knuckleballers faced off against each other ever was 2003, and that was Wakefield and myself because it almost happened three or four years ago when a bunch of reporters were calling both of us because two guys, R.A. Dickey and Stephen Wright, were about to face off against each other, and it ended up getting rained out. So it's still Wakefield and I, the last two that faced off. That's so cool. Yeah, I was yeah.
2: wondering if anybody you know, had faced each other as knuckleballers since – And you use the word fraternity, so cool that, you know, all these guys in this fraternity get a chance to bounce ideas and questions off each other.
3: Here's a little tidbit about this. So, Bob Melvin, who's the the manager for the Oakland A's right now, he was one of my coaches uh, with the Detroit Tigers. He was a bench coach um, for a while there. So, we know each other pretty well. And he's the the manager, of course, uh, with the Oakland A's now, a great manager. And so I talked to him a lot when the Astros play the A's and I was in their dugout, you know, before batting practice one day when he was meeting with the media and he tossed me a baseball uh, one day when we were just talking, he said, Hey, do you think you could throw a knuckleball with this? And I put my, tried to put my fingernails into it, but it was amazing how hard the ball was and how I couldn't even dig in with my fingernails right now. So, you know, a lot of talk has been going around in, in baseball about, how hard the ball's gotten, and, and why the balls are flying out of the ballpark with uh, so such regularity now—it's uh, because they are a wound tighter. And, and I can kind of testify to that. So I will say this: there's there wasn't a knuckleballer in the major leagues last year, and if the ball remains like it is right now, I don't think there's going to be until they do something about the ball. And I do think that they'll probably soften the ball or not wind them as tight at some point because it, it got a little ridiculous last year. We'll have to see what it's like when the season resumes this year. But uh, uh until that happens, I don't think there's going to be a knuckleballer.
2: Well, you're our favorite knuckleballer. And oh. I, want to, <laughs> I want to hear about you in the booth now. So you retire and then you're coming up on probably what, close to a decade as the Astros radio color analyst?
3: Yeah. So um one year after, My playing career ended. I was done when I was 41 years old. Uh, I was out of baseball for a little bit, and uh, I was at a charity golf tournament. And my wife uh, just happened to be sitting next to one of the Astros' uh, television broadcaster's wives. And she had mentioned that they were looking for somebody to do pre- and post-game work. They were having a hard time finding professional players in the Houston area uh, that were available to do that or, or even had a desire to. So my wife was just talking to her a little bit and he got a number of somebody and talked me into calling the producer for Fox Sports back then uh, to maybe do the pre and post game stuff, a little bit of work for them uh, to do that. So um, called him, yeah, met him for lunch, and the next day I was doing it. I was on TV. So I did that uh, uh, probably about half the games uh, on pre and post game for the Astros for seven years. And then uh, at the end of that seventh year, at the end of the 2012 season, the Astros Hall of Fame radio broadcaster, Milo Hamilton, retired. And when that happened, they, uh, they wanted to interview different people. And they asked me to interview. Uh, wasn't perfect timing. Uh, what I was doing with the pre and post game stuff was perfect for me because I didn't have to travel. And with my kids at their age, uh, I, was, I was very happy to be at home and get a chance to be at their activities. So it wasn't perfect timing as far as my youngest uh, daughter was concerned to to start traveling again. But I did interview for that job before the 2013 season, and I got it. Uh, So that was uh, ahead of the 2013 Astro season. So this season will will mark my eighth season full-time doing the radio, and that's that's basically every game on the radio, spring training and during the regular season and the playoffs.
2: So what's it like, Steve? Like now you're on the flip side of it. You're not on the field. You're off the field commenting about what's happening. How does that feel?
3: Well, it's a lot less stressful. Uh, I, I think you, you get a little stressed every once in a while. and this is This happens very rarely, but if you don't feel prepared, and I would say 98% of the time I feel prepared. And the only time I don't feel prepared is, when I get hung up uh, trying to get a, a pregame interview and if, if it takes me sometimes, I mean, it's crazy. It sounds like it, w- it wouldn't be the case, but every once in a while, it takes you two or three hours to, to pin somebody down to get them because they'll push. I mean, you know, players have to go, you know, certain spots and, you know, and you just can't, can't pin it down. And it takes you three hours to, to get your pregame interview. So you lose a lot of your time to do your prep work. And that's the only time you ever feel, a little bit of stress but other than that compared to pitching it's nothing especially with my stuff so um, the baseball part of it is interesting so as a pitcher uh, when you give up a home run for some reason to, to be consistent and to be successful you you really have to be even keel and if you allow your heart to to really fluctuate it's hard to be consistent so professional athletes really learn how to to slow their heart rates down and, and to breathe, and to, to kind of get non-emotional, and that's what I carried into my broadcasting for a couple of years, uh, as I tried to do this, especially in my play-by-play innings. So I remember Milo Hamilton, who had retired, that Hall of Fame broadcaster who retired, was always trying to get me to push, you know, to push it, to push it, to to to. You know, try to be more enthusiastic on your home run calls. Just you know, all this stuff. That was the hardest part. And finally, just through repetition, it just finally clicked. Finally, where I just finally ended up being. You know, I wasn't a player anymore. Then I became a fan again, and where I could just kind of let loose and and not even think about the way I used to kind of train myself with my heart rate. So that was the biggest hurdle. Uh, The other thing is, is two days before I started my my first spring training. That's when they told me, by the way, you're doing play-by-play as well for for a couple of innings a game, and I'm just like, what? I've never – you know, as an analyst, that's kind of natural for a player to do that. That's just telling why, but to tell what uh, becomes very difficult, especially for radio. You're filling up a lot of time. Um, So it's an art. It's a science, man. Uh, When you listen to these guys who are really good at this and been doing it for a long time, you really appreciate – how smoothly they transition, they tell a story and keep you engaged in the action, uh, really make you feel like you're at the ballpark.
2: Who are some of those guys out there that you've looked up to and learned from?
3: Well, I didn't grow up uh, idolizing broadcasters. So I, I will say this, as a, as a kid, my brother and I shared a bedroom, and we would listen to St. Louis Cardinals broadcast. so Jack Buck and Mike Shannon Were two that we would listen to in our transistor radios. Uh, We had a little clock radio when we got a little bit older and had that. And man, it was magical. You know, we felt like we were in St. Louis. And you know, just they had a booming 50,000 watt, you know, reception, and it was clear as day in the in the sky in the summertime. So uh, that's who I listened to. But I didn't listen to the game the same way that a lot of kids do who who end up being broadcasters. I listened to it to hear what the players were doing but I, I certainly felt like I was there because of those guys. I realize that now. Now, since I've become, since I've become a broadcaster and my first five years that I was broadcasting, certainly idolized Vince Scully. I mean, the stories and the seamlessness in the way he he went, went about telling, you know, yarning and weaving stories throughout the play. And it's kind of funny. It was like the baseball gods, gods always smiled on him because if I ever, with one out, tried to start a story, you know, it, it seems like every time that I would try to do that with one out, if there was a guy on, there'd be a double play and it would just ruin my story right there, you know. And uh, every time Ben <laughs> Scully does it, it would be foul ball, foul ball, long at bats. Every time he got to finish his story because he, he was Ben Scully. Nowadays, ah, right cool. now, I mean, I, I love a lot of guys. And you may not have heard of a couple of them, but Ken Korak with the Oakland A's I think is brilliant. Um, there's a lot of good ones around baseball. Tom Hamilton, uh, maybe uh, just as much off the field as on, on the microphone, uh, I've really come to admire. I think he's a great person. And when I was a, uh, a player with the Detroit Tigers, and I just got done finishing just yesterday, a book about uh one of my favorite people i've ever met in my entire life and it's a hall of fame uh radio broadcaster with the tigers when i was playing there his name was ernie harwell uh just lived the the most full life but i'll say this more uh, about ernie harwell and the, you know we would have a bible study and, and he would read from the bible and it sounded like god was speaking because his voice was so rich but, uh uh, he was a better person than he was even a broadcaster and he was one of the best of all time but what a what a kind genuine man he treated everybody the, exactly the same well I think that's one of the reasons why Rob and I
2: like you you've been so kind to us and um, <laughs> you you've been working alongside Rob Ford now for many years what's some of your favorite games or memories that the two of you have shared in the booth
3: you know what sticks out the most is the playoffs. So when the, the Astros have gone to the playoffs or when any team goes to the playoffs, the television broadcasters becomes a bit bittersweet because they get uh, set aside and it goes to the national broadcast. So they don't really get to enjoy uh, the most fun, fun times of the year. It's kind of, you know, you're always hoping and wishing for your, the, the team you broadcast. I'm a homer, you know, I'll, I'll say it, you know, I, I've invested, I'm invested in these players because I've gotten to know their parents and, and everything else. So I'm a fan, and I hope they win, and I hope they do well. So when they get there, the, the playoffs are the most fun. And what I remember the most are about the playoffs is Robert's had, a, a, you know, in the last few years, the Astros have won over 100 games the last three years, and they've had great playoff runs. So there's been a lot of big moments. And game five of the 2017 World Series was a classic. It lasted over five hours and despite that, there were so many thrilling moments, but there's been a million times when he's made unbelievable calls, and we've come out of our seats, and we're high-fiving each other during the action, and that's what sticks out more than anything else, is like, um, it's just a lot of fun, and you don't, you, you hope it's it's not audible that you can hear us high-fiving in, in the seats, but you can hear uh, in the voices that we're, we're pretty darn excited about what's going on, and When the Astros did win the World Series, and I know a lot of things have been tainted since, but at the time, it meant so much to the city coming off of the devastation of Hurricane Harvey. It was the perfect time for them to to really pull something miraculous off, and it meant a lot to a lot of people who were really hurting. One thing I remember is uh, somebody sending us a picture one time, and they were sitting in the middle of some concrete floor. All that was up in their home was studs. They had no walls. And they were all sitting in lawn chairs around the radio listening to Robert and I call the world series. So that uh, was pretty cool.
2: Oh my gosh, that is so amazing. You've had such an impact on so many people's lives, Steve, congrats.
3: Well, I appreciate it. You know, it's just, you know, you get put, you're appreciative and you're grateful to, to be in, in certain spots and you don't think of yourself, you just think of yourself that you're lucky. So you don't want to shortchange people, but I think people kind of, you know if you're real people get used to you and they, they start to feel like you're part of the the broadcast and I had somebody tell me something uh last year somebody that I really respect somebody who's who studied broadcasting and he said try to make people feel like they're the only person you're talking to when you're doing a broadcast and say little things like hey just between you and me during the course of a broadcast and it was something that I think it was FDR who had the fireside chats that, that really made the people in the country when they were listening to him on the radio feel like he was talking directly to them. And there was one person I think that wrote that FDR, he never knew FDR, but FDR knew him. And I think, I think that's, the, that's the way we want to make people feel like we know them, we're talking to them and they're right there with us and, and they can smell what we smell as that game's going on and they can see exactly what we're going on hey we 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 get a lot of feedback from people who are blind that count on us to describe this action have you
2: ever done one of those things where you've uh, turned off the tv volume and you've just listened to the radio throughout the course of a game because to me that's one of the best things ever when you're watching the game on television but you're listening to the radio guys call play by play. It is just so impressive and special.
3: Well, yeah, I have done that. You know, I'm working every game now, but uh, I I know somebody who does that uh, for 162 games a year. And that's Dolores Sparks, my mommy in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So (laughs) she'll, she'll watch every game uh, on her cable affiliate and uh, she'll pause it for seven seconds, put on the radio broadcast, and then push pause again because our, our, our feeds are a little bit delayed and she gets to listen to her little Steven every single night and she will text Robert and I within five seconds right at the end of every single pitch of every game in the whole year.
0: Oh
2: my gosh. That's so sweet. So yeah. Oh man. What a, you got a great family. It sounds like Steve. And um, before we get you out of here, I wanted to ask you one last thing too. Um, we got a chance to spend some time together this spring and you're, you're really staying in shape. You're staying healthy. Uh, Tell our listeners out there what that's all about and and why health is so important to you.
3: Well, I had an episode uh, December 11th, and the episode, man, it it just kind of came out of the blue, but um, it was a cool afternoon, uh, middle of the week, and I had gone to hit uh, golf balls for about 15 or 20 minutes uh, at a country club that's about 10 minutes from my house. And I went to the workout facility and worked out for about 45 minutes. And when I came outside of the gym, uh, I felt a little coolness in the middle of my chest. And I thought it was from the cold air. And uh, about halfway home, it persisted. And then uh, I started to feel a little achiness in my left shoulder. Well, I had five more minutes to get home. And as I pulled into my driveway, I got nauseous. And uh, my wife was inside uh, when I got sick inside. And uh, she asked me what was going on. I told her she recognized the symptoms from her nursing background and she was very adamant uh, about, we we go get it checked. Let's go to the hospital. So uh, I pushed back. I said, let me stretch for a second, see if it goes away. And she just persisted. She goes, let's go. So we get to the hospital, which was 10 or 15 minutes from my house luckily. And um, within a minute, it's probably about 45 seconds that we got into the front door of the uh the hospital uh, i had a full-on heart attack so it was the widow maker uh if you're familiar with that 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 artery it was 99 percent blocked i would never had any previous symptoms um, most people die i died three times and, and they brought me back to life and uh been on the road to recovery ever since so very grateful to to those folks um, I will say this, and every chance that I get, and everybody that that I tell this story to, is I had no symptoms. I'd, I'd, I've never had bad cholesterol or, or high blood pressure, um, but I wasn't uh, really good about getting uh, constant physicals, or I probably would have got it detected early, earlier. But uh, there's one test, and, and I think it costs right around a hundred bucks, and it's a calcium score that you can take to see how much calcium's in your bloodstream to see if you're a candidate for for a little bit of blockage anywhere in your arteries so that's something that you can do pretty easily if you get a chance or if you know that stuff starts to to happen in uh, your late 20s typically where it could start building up if it's in your family history so it's one thing the doctors told me he said family history trumps everything else as far as you know blood pressure cholesterol anything else family history is the thing and mine was more extensive than i than i had known uh and that was the reason i wasn't getting checked out as is normally as I should have, but, uh, on the road to recovery now. So, uh, I exercise a lot more. Um, I eat really well and I feel great. So that's, that's, that's my two cents there.
2: I love it, Steve. You, uh, you're an inspiration to Rob and I and we definitely look up to you and we appreciate you joining us here on our podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Sparks, MLB
1: knuckleball pitcher. Rick, let me jump in here. Steve, before we wrap things up, I gotta hear, the home run call from Steve Sparks.
3: You know what? That, that's funny you asked me this. So um, I asked Milo Hamilton one night, my wife, he, he asked my wife and I to go out to eat with him. He was the Hall of Fame broadcaster before Robert and myself took over. I said, do you think I should try to develop a, a catchphrase, a home run call? He said, not if you're not the main play-by-play guy. He said, save that for Robert. He said, when you're that guy, just try to be as spontaneous as you can and and do whatever you can. But I will say this. This was totally spontaneous and it was in the World Series and I believe it was game five of the 2017 World Series. And the Astros were down by three runs. Clayton Kershaw was on the mound and Ulyeski Gurriel came to the plate and it went something like this. And I don't know why it came, it, it came out of my mouth because of, all the years that I played winter ball in Mexico, Venezuela, and Dominican Republic. And there was one phrase that always uh, stuck out to me uh, when I was in those countries. But I said um, something like, here's the pitch from Kershaw. Cut fastball inside. Here's a shot to left field. It could be
1: Arriba, Guriel. we're tied.
3: So Arriba came
1: out. Dude, I just got chills.
3: as As a home run. So that tied it up. You know, the Astros were down by, by uh, three runs, and Guriel tied it up. Oh, my
2: gosh. This I don't whole know podcast. if that was verbatim,
3: but that was pretty close.
2: Ah, uh, that, that made the whole thing worth it, Steve. That was <laughs> exceptional. <laughs> that was awesome, dude. So
1: there's
3: some, there's some guys that are so good at it, man. They're so, they're so spontaneous. Uh, I just want to be – for me, as far as premeditation, I want to be ready for milestones not in what I'm going to say, but just to get the information correct. You know, when, whenever you're wrapping the bow around a call, it's called the action and all that stuff. And whenever you're wrapping things up and trying to make it as accurate as possible, that's when you you, you go to your information that you've jotted down in, in your scorebook beforehand, because you want to be prepared for those moments because those are the ones that are going to stay in the, the team's archives. So those are the ones that people are going to hear and highlights a lot. Mm. So you want to get those exactly right. Mm.
1: Now, I know we're going to wrap up. We're at the end of the call, but I have to ask this. I'm a huge Macklemore fan. He's a rapper. I'm not sure yeah. if you're familiar with him. And he has yeah. one song called My Oh
3: My. I love it. Man, I, that 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 song gives me thrills about Dave Neheis. Oh, that's unbelievable. First time I heard that, man. Yeah, I went nuts. I'm with you.
1: So when Rick said you were the broadcaster for the Astros, I was like jacked up. I go, let's go.
3: Yeah. Oh man, Dave Nehais. And those guys, you know, those guys, um, Macklemore wrote that song about Dave Nehais and Macklemore fell in love with baseball up in the Pacific Northwest because of Nehais. He'd he listened to the radio broadcast and uh, so he wanted to pay tribute to him. And he wrote that song when Nehais when died. Um, uh, so he wrote that and, and performed it uh, in front of the folks at Safeco Field at the time in Seattle. And that was the first time anybody had heard it, but, since then recorded it. And, uh, it was a great tribute. It was cool.
1: Maybe, maybe, uh, a rapper will come out with a re a a (laughs) revet.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That would, that, you know, that would, that would be, that would make everything worth it. You know, if they immortalize, and I'm not saying there's been a million better calls by other guys, especially my partner, (laughs) but, uh, it's one that kind of stuck out because I remember at the time, like, where did that come from?
2: (laughs) awesome
3: oh man well this has well, been
2: a lot steve, of fun thanks so much for joining us rob uh i mean this is one of my favorite podcasts of all time just so fascinating
1: 100 percent.
3: all right you guys thanks for having me on man i was looking forward to it it was a lot of fun
1: thanks a lot steve and uh signing off i'm rob brant
3: and i'm rick brant
1: and
2: we are the brothers brant